Welcome to Reinventing the Future by HP Tech Ventures. I'm your host, Bonnie Day. In this podcast, we go behind the scenes with startup founders and entrepreneurs who are defining tomorrow's world and experiences. We are talking innovation, their groundbreaking ideas, their big picture strategies, and how they continually adapt to our ever-changing world. Their stories will inspire you to dream big, tap into your inner innovator, and create the future you imagine. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. Neil Sarkar, CEO of Ad Hoc Microsystems, a company that develops eye tracking technology that helps unlock the connection between the eyes, the brain, and the world around us. All right, let's talk a little bit about your company. Let's start there. Sure. So uh, Ad Hoc Microsystems uh, is a company that builds eye tracking technology that is designed to unlock the connection uh, between our minds uh, and the world around us uh, by measuring with very high resolution and very high speed the very subtle uh, changes in eye movement dynamics. Um, so, you know, over the past few years, we've developed this new way to do eye tracking that doesn't use any cameras. Uh, and so one of the big drawbacks of just trying to take pictures of someone's eyes a hundred times a second, and then having to um, do image processing on each of those pictures is that it adds a lot of computation, electrical power consumption, and latency. It's not very robust to lighting conditions. So it's it's really been relegated to laboratory environments where you know researchers have done a ton of uh, fascinating research in, in the eye tracking field. And there's a whole field of neuro-ophthalmology uh, where they use these expensive instruments to connect eye movements to the brain. But we wanna be able to get in front of billions of eyeballs with a lightweight wearable that looks like you know the glasses that you're wearing um, so we had to redesign our eye tracker from the ground up, and that's kind of um, what we're selling now. You came out of an academic space. What? How did you focus in on this? I mean, I know you were innovative from the beginning, but but how did you focus in on the eye tracking? Yeah, so, you know, um, this company was actually a spinoff from the University of Waterloo while where I was doing my postdoc at the time. And we had just developed these really cool tiny chips that... Uh, if you put the chip on another chip, it can capture an image of that chip with our chip with nanometer uh, scale resolution. So it could pick up like piconewton level forces and position things with sub nanometer resolution. And, you know, we were excited to be able to democratize nanotechnology so that a high school student could, you know, peek into the nano world. Uh, and that's how we measured our impact factor. But, you know, in the academic circles, uh, the way you measure impact factor is how many people have read your paper. Uh, or are citing your paper. And that wasn't really always, I think, a, a good indicator that was well aligned with myself and my peers. We wanted to somehow affect the lives of billions of people. And at the time, uh, AR and VR were taking off and we had just discovered uh, and come up with this architecture for eye tracking. And we really believed that if you can get an eye tracker in front of billions of people, um, then it could measure things like their anxiety, their fatigue, their um, you know, neurological health, their cognitive load, and, and kind of like give them some information about uh, how they can improve their lives and their mental health and wellness. And that seemed to us to be something where it's like, look, if we're going to be putting in these 80-hour weeks, uh, and if we've got a bunch of really smart people that love working together, why not try to work on something that, that has a real impact factor? So that was kind of the, the impetus for, for leaving campus, cutting the umbilical cord with the university and, and, uh, and getting out into the real world. 
you have a, an unusual team because it's so large, right? Yeah, our founding um, team included 10 co-founders, including our professor, Dr. Mansour, who was the, the founder of the Surf Lab that we spun out of. And it's kind of because, you know, these glasses require some expertise in semiconductor manufacturing, some deep expertise in optics and optomechanics, but then also ID design and human factors and embedded systems and software. And, and so we really needed a multidisciplinary set of uh, co-founders with deep expertise. And it was great that a lot of us came from this academic background because we had this culture of curiosity and collaboration, which we've managed to keep alive in the company uh, over the years. Yeah, I love that. I want to hear more about how how do you take your team, you know, your large group of founders, and I'm sure lots of other employees at this point, how do you take them all and make sure that the innovative spirit stays alive, stays fed, you know, that things stay exciting and and that you're you're still out there on the edge all the time. How do you do that? So I think, you know, those are all the good things about academic um, uh, you know, uh, minded folks, there are also some bad things, right? So there's some, some aspects of like just being able to just get the work done well enough to get your first data set so you can publish a paper and move on that we've had to really uh, look out for and, and eliminate. But um, I think the reason why we've been able to keep this uh, sort of uh, culture alive is that this um, data that we're getting from the human eye box uh, is actually, you know, um, a platform for all kinds of uh, you know questions to be asked by by curious people. So you know everything that humans do, we lead with our eyes. And so there are applications in you know reading, in sports training, in concussion, in you know these medical conditions. And each of us has a passion about a certain you know type of thing we might be able to one day do with our eye tracker. Um, now, we, we're not publishing as many papers. Mostly what we have to do is, is patent. We don't go to as many conferences as we used to. Um, and this year was, has been great because a lot of the conferences have been online. So we can just kind of log in and, and learn from experts in the field. But I think if we were developing technology that didn't have all of these open questions that haven't been answered yet, uh, it would be much harder to stay curious. What part do you think imagination plays in what you do? Because it feels like it would be something that would be very important, that you would have to be able to be looking ahead and visualizing in ways that you're not, things that you aren't seeing in the world right now. That's a, a good question. So I think having a creative sense of technology is, is a, a huge advantage in the field of engineering, especially if you're going to do something entrepreneurial. Uh, and you do have to be able to think outside of the box, but the more you learn, the quicker you are to reject new ideas because you're like, ah, I've seen people try that before. It's not, it's never going to work. So I try to uh, suppress that inner sort of skeptic. Um, uh, and, you know, maybe I, I take less risks, but um, they're more, um, I would say qualified risks. Uh, compared to when I was a kid, and I, you know, built a an RS two thirty two interface out of logic chips. Which, if someone proposed that to me today, I would tell them you're wasting your time, right? Um, so, I don't know. It's hard to keep that uh, creativity and and spirit of like you know try new things alive as you get further into your education. Um, that's something I'm kind of cognizant of and I try to suppress. Hope 
what do you think we can do as a as humans as as societies what do you think we can do to improve the innovative spirit in people well i think north americans have done one thing right which is you know we've developed this culture uh, in silicon valley where you know a founder can fail miserably uh, at at an ambitious idea and because they're familiar with the investment ecosystem and because they have some credibility um you know we don't hold that against them uh we think that they you know made the right moves they you know if they um if they tried really hard and and pro- proved to their board that they were uh they were serious about you know this vision that they had these serial entrepreneurs exist whereas there are some other cultures where the first time you fail is is more likely to be the last time you fail um so i think that we did right i think stem education is something that we're trying to fix um i think it's it's very important for us to make it possible at least for a curious you know uh, elementary school kid uh to visit a lab and to use a microscope that costs a million dollars um so that you know they get excited about it but i think in terms of improving our health as humans which i think is is also going to be something that fuels creativity you know there's a professor at uh, georgia tech um named professor allen who made this analogy years ago which is that you know there used to be a time where you would bring your car to the shop and you would have no idea what was going on inside it and there were some wizard mechanics that would actually have a stethoscope and they put it up on the hood of this dodge charger and they could tell you which you know cylinder was misfiring but today you take your car to the shop and they just plug it into a computer and the computer will tell you look the left oxygen sensor is out so it's you know cars are heavily instrumented now and when you look at you know teslas this is uh, you know the trend uh, continues So we think that humans will be heavily instrumented and you know having these wearables that are constantly measuring our you know EKG EEG breathing um sleep patterns and now finally uh, mental health and wellness and and you know deep insights into brain activity through through eye tracking it's going to enable us to always be available to call the doctor and be like hey I'm feeling a little bit like I'm at risk of falling or I'm feeling a little dizzy and it's like look the doctor's going to say yeah you know your your instrumentation has already pinged me you are at risk of falling we've noticed that the IMU in your glasses and the way your eyes are moving are not conjugated well so we recommend you don't try to drive here um we'll we'll send you an uber and and we'll you know check you out right so we really think that um having non-invasive initially um high resolution we can't have these fisher price toys right they have to produce medical grade research grade data um but having that on all humans is going to reduce the burden uh, to our medicare system and improve the health of humans now back to your company in the early days in the in the evolution of it have you ever had that moment where you've just had to pivot really hard where something's just come up that was completely a surprise and you had to make a turn has that happened to you Yeah, I mean, you know, in the early days, we really thought of ourselves as a uh fabless semiconductor company. So we were going to develop a reference design with some chips in it, and the OEMs that were making the AR and VR products, they would buy our chipset and integrate it into their product, and they would develop the software for it. We found out very early on that that was naive, that um we we couldn't just deliver a chipset, we really needed to deliver a full stack solution. And that meant not just the chip but also the embedded system um you know that did all of the you know calculations on the eye position but then also APIs and then above that applications that people can use in VR to understand like why is eye tracking so important 
And so as we realized how much more we had to do, um, the composition of our team changed. So we weren't uh, just a you know, semiconductor and hardware team with a little bit of embedded experience. We really expanded the software side of things. And, and today I would say I'm very proud of, of how um, deep and wide uh, our expertise has become. Um, but I guess to answer your question in terms of pivoting, uh, I think at, other than you know, having to develop the full stack solution, we were really focused on VR in the early days. Um, and that uh, is still something that's very exciting to us. And, and so is AR. We think having eye tracking in these lightweight glasses is going to you know, be the difference between having a keyboard and a mouse and not um, with, with your computer, right? But uh, you know, it turns out that the timeline for those products getting to really high volume was, was longer than most people expected. So today we're, we're uh, equally excited about opportunities in personalized medicine, health and wellness, uh, and and quantify itself as we are about about AR and VR because it's just a it's just a, a very broadly applicable technology. So we want to make sure that um, it can address the needs of multiple markets. It's interesting, you know, you you say, oh well, we found this out, and so we had to, you know, we had to make the change. But that was a huge change to have to go from delivering a chip to delivering what you deliver. So my question is, when things like that happen, you know. Are you able to just visualize some big goal that you have no idea how you're going to get to and then do it? Is that sort of how you work? You look at the vision and then you work backwards towards it? There is certainly some of that type of planning where, you know, our board members uh, from HP, as well as our other investors have really helped us ask, ask ourselves the high level questions and, and put together roadmaps. But in the early days, it was more like, it felt more like, you know, a bunch of nerds from a university getting punched in the face by people from the real world, right? <laughs> so we had a lot of uh, OEM, very demanding OEM customers that were just saying, hey, look, you know, we're not even going to bother plugging this in unless, um, you know, you get, you know, these problems solved. And it felt kind of like death by a thousand cuts um, because it was like a game of whack-a-mole. As soon as we figured out how to get it working on one type of human face, we realized that we needed to accommodate others and and that, you know, population coverage and, the exceptions and outliers were so important. So all of these things were um, very uh, impactful learning experiences for, you know, a, a team that maybe had some somewhat of a naive perspective. So some, at least a part of the team came from, from academia, but we made some very key hires uh, from industry, you know, veterans that uh, understand what it takes to qualify a product so that it can actually get into industry and withstand like the rigorous use cases of consumers. So yeah, we, we, um, we've had a lot of uh, setbacks. <laughs> Which you've obviously weathered with grace. <laughs> well, I would, I, yeah, I, I wouldn't say grace. Uh, there's definitely been some, some very high stress times, um, usually about a week before every year's CES. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think where we are now, where we've positioned ourselves today with the technology is, is finally, um, somewhere where I think we can actually be deployed uh, across billions of eyeballs. So I, I think we're we're almost there. Do you consider yourself a disruptor? I mean, is that something that really, when you're describing yourself, would you think I am disrupting industries? That is what I do. I mean, I don't consider myself personally uh, to be. Um, the one doing the disrupting, I think I'm very lucky to have surrounded myself with people that have 
just brilliant minds and and deep technical skills that that could do that. But I, I certainly would agree with you that I wouldn't get excited about you know my first startup company, which was this atomic force microscope on a chip, if it wasn't going to you know have a step change impact on that market, right? So we make these microscopes, which usually cost a hundred thousand dollars. You know, our goal was to make these chips cost a hundred dollars or less, right? Um, we wanted to make them so easy to use that uh, you can just you know plug them in and within 30 seconds get an image at the nanometer scale. You know, you only come up with with ideas like this uh, once in a while. So if you if you do think that there's something transformative you can do, and it stands the test of scrutiny of of the VCs and and of your peers, um, it's worth putting five years into. Speaking of, um, that's a really interesting question for for me to hear the answer to is when you do partner with someone like you have partnered with HP, what does that do for you? What does that do for your tech? What does that do for the company's experience? What does that do for the speed of innovation? What are what are the impacts? Huge, hugely impactful. So on the one hand, um, you know, Having a proof of concept gets you a lot of attention at the academic conferences and allows you to publish papers and and uh, and it's it's really neat. It has a wow factor. You can go to a conference like CES or a trade show, and show people a demo and, it, and it's great. But as soon as you have a customer who expects this thing to be in production, who expects it to work, so that like someone buys this from Best Buy, when they plug it in, if the eye tracker doesn't work, they're going to return it, and you can't tolerate more than you know two percent of your product being returned. As soon as you have those really demanding requirements, and then you know, you, you know, it was a privilege to get to work with HP because we got to see how their ODMs are are, are actually taking you know the engineering uh, into uh, into like the rigorous kind of qualification processes, and what does it take to actually manufacture hundreds of thousands of something as opposed to a smaller amount? None of that we would have had if we didn't have our customers. Um, pulling us in, in the right direction and showing us uh, why uh, we were falling short of expectations. And that really, uh, I would say, curiosity, creativity, and hard work is what 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 drove the development of the, the tech to the point where we were funded. But I would say customers and, and having great customers that are transparent and that are you know telling us uh, what we need to know to improve has been the rest of it. Yeah, I imagine reaching your goals becomes smoother. I'm still, I'm sure there's still challenges, but I am sure it's a smoother ride when you have that kind of partnership. Yeah. We wouldn't have known what needs to go into this product, you know, that we're going to be selling ourselves if we didn't, if we weren't told uh, uh, about what was just kind of lacking in other products. So that, you know, exposure to like, what does it take to to ship a consumer product has been uh, very helpful in the Can you tell us a little bit about your first innovation, something that you remember doing as a youngster? I would say one of the earliest uh, things that that I did that was innovative was probably in, in elementary school um, when we had something like a science fair, and uh, I put together this um, you know circuit board with a whole bunch of planets that would spin around at the right speed and then spin around the sun at the right rate. To try to capture uh, the solar system for uh, for for fun um, in grade six, uh, so things like that really um, 
I think indicated to my parents that um, that I was interested in the sciences. And so for the rest of high school, um, they supported me in whatever possible way uh, to enable me to do uh, some pretty cool subsequent science uh, science projects. Oh, that is such a great start. I love it. Sixth grade. Was everyone else going, wait, what about my volcano? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, you know, there's a lot of uh, clever and curious kids in my school. And uh, I did, uh, you know, I was kind of lucky to have a big crowd around my uh, table for, for the whole event. So this was a lot of fun. I bet. So you're a, you're a grade school student and you just literally have a passion for invention, correct? Yeah, I would say it was a little bit frustrating to my parents because anytime they bought me a toy, um, first thing I would do is just take it apart. And I would never be able to put it back together the same way that it was was uh, was at first. But then I think after my parents saw that science project, they realized that I was getting more out of the toy by taking it apart and trying to put it back together than just by playing with it. Um, so that was probably the earliest indicator that I was super curious about gearboxes and motors and batteries and stuff like that. I just wanted to know how everything worked. Do you think there was a connective thread between all this invention that you did as a youngster and what you do today? Yeah, I think I'm always uh, most excited and and sort of most motivated to you know pull the all-nighters and and put in the effort when there's something I'm either very curious about or that you know there's some sort of breakthrough that I couldn't have expected. And I think the the rest of the team um, also has uh, has those tendencies of, of getting really excited and working really hard when we're on the verge of a breakthrough. Um, I wouldn't say that's unique to me, but it's certainly um, been one of the, the one of the factors that differentiates the type of, of, of work mentality that I have. So last question. If if you were to talk to a group of 10-year-olds or maybe your 10-year-old self, you know, kids, what would be the best advice that you could give right now to encourage them to embrace an innovative spirit and to be in the basement and to be creating science fair projects and, and to think that way, to see the world that way, to see the future? Yeah, you know, I think there has unfortunately been, um, you know, a lot of... Um, uh, maybe negative press around what's happening at the higher institutes of learning and, you know, the sort of the cultures in, in, in academia and, and, you know, our education system in North America probably is no longer, you know, one of the best in the world. We're, we're, uh, and I think, you know, we're essentially um, enabling uh, kids of that age to spend so much time um, on social, on social media and requiring instant gratification that uh, it's very difficult to imagine a time, uh, you know, imagine these kids being able to focus on one thing for an hour a day, every day for a year. And so I think, you know, some of the things like, you know, playing tennis and getting really good at it to understand, you know, what it takes to get good at something, um, as opposed to playing very casually once in a while for fun or, or you know, playing chess or, or you know, pick a hobby that that you enjoy um, but take it seriously enough that like you can just turn off all of your devices and just do it alone uh, for an hour a day, I think would be um, would be a good piece of advice. And another would be, you know, stay in school. Right. This is something that they um, they have in all the commercials. Right. But I think when um, you really uh, enjoy learning 
new things and then maybe even discovering new things and you're really excited about teaching them to others, um, that puts you in a position to, to really make major contributions to, to science and to humanity. It's like, if you love learning and you love teaching, um, then you should stay in that environment for as long as you can. I love your story. I'm really super glad you joined us and um, I wish you so much luck. I can't wait to see what's next for you and can't wait to have your glasses on. (laughs) All right. Yeah. I uh, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Neil. I would like to thank Dr. Neil Sarkar, CEO of Ad Hoc Microsystems, an HP Tech Ventures portfolio company, for sharing his unique vision and his story with us. Join us next time for more inspiration from startup founders and entrepreneurs whose companies are making life better for everyone, everywhere. In the meantime, remember, we all have the power to shape the future. What future will you create? If you enjoyed this episode of Reinventing the Future, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review.